Hello, everyone, and welcome to our very first episode of Hidden Forces with me, Dimitri Kafinas. Today, we're talking with journalist and tech guru David Kirkpatrick. David is the author of The Facebook Effect and the founder of Techonomy Media, which, among other things, produces some of the most kick-ass conferences that are at the intersection of technology, business, academia, and government. He writes at Techonomy.com. He's a contributing editor of Bloomberg Television and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. But most importantly, David is a brilliant and intensely curious guy. Nothing is off the table in this conversation. In fact, we run the table. In this episode, you're going to hear about everything from some of the most pressing challenges in artificial intelligence, the future of work, the dangers of the surveillance state, EMP attacks, blockchain, black box algorithms, you name it, we cover it. I also asked David if we're living in a simulation, that's right, and if technology can help us live forever. Here's our conversation. Uh, I met you about two years ago, roughly or so. Yeah. I was working on a conference on death and dying for the New York Open Center. Mm-hmm. We met randomly because I was th- thinking about doing an institute on technology and consciousness. And then uh, uh, we got together. We had lunch. I went down to your conference in Washington, D.C., Techonomy in, in D.C., which is the first time we did a policy institute right. tech economy thing. Yeah. And then I was recently at your conference at uh, Half, Moon Bay. Half Moon Bay, which was amazing. I've Listen, I've been to a, a, a number of really awesome conferences, especially because of all the work I did in finance. I went to an amazing conference in Vancouver. I remember that was I was just it was I was beautiful. Jim Grant does these amazing conferences here in Manhattan at the Plaza. Yours is the best conference I've ever been to. Well, that's what we aspire to. So thank you for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> How does it compare? You were in Davos. How was Davos? Well, but Davos is better than my conference, I have to say. But uh, what is Davos? Like? Well, the thing about Davos is it's you know over two thousand formal attendees with another ten thousand people on the periphery who don't have the ability to get into the main building. So what are they just are, watching like, like the Super Bowl? No, no, they're the organizing <laughs> side events, dinners. They're trying to sell to the people who are walking around on the streets that are, you know, with the white badges. Uh, their support staff of the corporate people who are there who are very big names, you know. Right. They're the helicopter pilots, you know, it's like all that kind of stuff. It's a very, very high-end crowd, but it also is a very aspirational conference in a way that I think is quite similar to ours, or I should say more properly, ours is similar to theirs because I've been highly inspired by the World Economic Forum. And, you know, they say their mandate is to improve the state of the world, which they've been, you know, sometimes laughed at for. But I think it really does define the DNA of that event. And even though it's a business event, and it's supported by corporate money and a lot of companies spend millions participating in it, it is very high-minded in terms of really trying to make the world, make progress faster for the whole planet. And, you know, partly they include heads of state of usually 80 countries. Because everybody goes there. Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, Angela Merkel and uh, Hollande was there and... uh, uh, Xi Jinping was there uh, this year, which is a first to have the, the head of state of China there. Never had happened before, but that event continues to inspire me with its um, optimism, its idealism, and the way it combines that with pragmatism. And and we do the same kind of thing 
in a much smaller scale with a very heavy technology focus with technology at the core of all of our dialogues. Well, we're going to get more into that because I want to. You have a you have a conference coming up on the seventeenth of May here, sixteenth and seventeenth in New York. We have a one day Techonomy Health on May sixteenth, followed by a one day Techonomy New York City, which is a more distilled version of the one you came to in Half Moon Bay. But they'll also sort of be a one without big the fire two, pits. It'll be a, no fire pits, <laughs> but it'll be a two day conference. But just the first day is all about it, tech and health. And it, it, both days are going to be amazing. That's awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna be there too. I'm gonna I already signed up to your other conference, the one in oh, 2017. Good, good, good. I know I'm, that. I'm actually. psyched I'm to very go. Pleased by that. <laughs> All right. So uh, I saw that. Uh, by the way, well, what was I'm gonna ask you also what the most interesting thing is that you heard at Davos. I know you also conducted some interviews when you were there, but uh, I saw blockchain was on the agenda. Was it seriously on the agenda? Or was it kind of like an at item? Davos? Yeah, it was. Blockchain and Bitcoin have been on the agenda at Davos for at least two years, maybe three years. I did a Bitcoin panel at Davos, I think, two years ago, so three Davoses ago. Um, blockchain is a big thing there. It came up in the context of many, many discussions. There were, pro I don't know how many, but there were more than one blockchain-oriented session. I did an interview with Joy Ito of the MIT Media Lab. Blockchain is a big part of his interest. He talked about it quite a bit in that interview. So, you know, in that audience, and blockchain is widely considered to be one of the transformative technologies of the coming era. Well, let's tell our so, audience, and for those people who don't know, what is blockchain? Uh, it's a decentralized shared database. That is Much the better. key element that I think defines it. Um, and the fact that it's shared is radical because it's not controlled by any one entity. It's a way of storing data about anything, whether money, in the case of Bitcoin, or art or futures trading information or ownership data about Identity cows data and sheep in the developing world, which we did an article about last year uh, in our magazine, or literally anything that needs to be tracked can be tracked with a blockchain technology with either the original blockchain or a derivative kind of copycat technology in order to create a a, a way to store information that is accessible to everyone but can't be controlled by anyone. And it's meant to be something like a financial slash legal equivalent to the Internet, just as the Internet made information democratized and accessible to everyone. The blockchain, in the view of its greatest proponents, is intended to make record-keeping and uh, data storage accessible equally to everyone with no centralized control. And the lack of centralized control is, is really one of the radical features of modern life. So to bring it to money Absolutely. and information you know, about ownership is a very radical notion, uh, and it's not here yet. That's the other key thing. It's a very, very promising idea that's almost entirely unimplemented at any reasonable scale so far. I love that you said that because that also, so you're talking about the fact that we have a decentral, increasingly decentralized economy, a nonlinear sort of economy. They can scale up and down faster. Uh, traditional economies of scale are changing. Supply chains are changing. But we have a political system that is built on an industrial economy that is more mm -hmm. centralized. Yeah. Um, and so 
with that in mind, with what you're saying about blockchain, uh, the larger point, I've been trying to see what's going on in civic tech. Most of what I'm seeing in civic tech is sort of B2B or B2C, stuff where they're, they're creating software that helps government run their systems better or that helps government interface with citizens better. What I'm really most interested in, and I, and I found this before I came in here and I printed it out, these are the only two companies I could find. There's one company called Neighborly and the other one called Nextdoor, sort of the equivalents of C2C, something where, uh, or like a sharing platform, like an Airbnb, where, where uh, citizens can spontaneously organize to solve problems outside of centralized uh, government structures, putting aside, you know, finding funding or not finding funding, but just having the organizational capacity to solve problems. Like this thing, Neighborly, I think it's uh, one of these, this one here, Nextdoor, yeah. $210, uh, $210 million in funding. Nextdoor's been around for a long time. See, I wasn't um, familiar with them at all. But, um, you know, it's interesting you say the political landscape vis-a-vis -vis the decentralized sort of sharing landscape, because I, I was going to say before when we were talking about blockchain, uh, um, and I, we, let, let's get back to civic tech, if I could go back to the point you made to sort of introduce this. I think one of the central questions in the age of Trump is how powerful can central institutions reassert themselves to be, and how much have we really moved to a fundamentally new type of society where citizens are empowered by the tools of technology in order to really take more control for themselves collectively, um, which is sort of the promise of the internet writ large, right? Um, so in other words, another way to think about that is, let's say Trump is the worst we can possibly imagine him to be, the true Hitlerian autocrat that, that the people's worst fantasies sometimes take them to predict, right? Which you hear a lot of people predicting on Facebook and elsewhere. How would we be able to fight back against that using the tools of modern, you know, digital economy? Would they be truly effective to restrain the attempt to essentially bypass normal legal constraints on government behavior? Or is it still possible for a, you know, a, dem a demagogue to take control of society as has happened in many cases in the past? I frankly think, you know, Probably we have already passed the point where the demagogue can take full control. What about Trump? Well, I was just saying that I, I think everybody's wondering how, um, how scared we should be. And those people like myself that are very immersed and passionately believers in technology as a transformative opportunity for all of society, many people who think that way, of which there are a large number, um, I think hope and probably believe that the empowerment of the individual that has occurred because of technology has already advanced to a point that it would be extremely difficult by historical standards for an autocrat to really become a dictatorial demagogue. But it's to be tested. And, you know, certainly that's why in every country that has a dictator in the world, they attempt to take control of the Internet and deny the citizens the, the access to these tools. And sometimes they succeed. And in the United States, if somebody tried to do that, you know, it might 
succeed. But then, you know, there's a great story about what happened in Egypt during the Arab Spring when Mubarak turned off the internet at the height of the protests to try to get back control of, you know, the citizen activism that was happening. And because the internet turned off, everybody left their houses and went out into the streets and it doubled the size of the demonstrations. So it back backfired against It's actually interesting. It reminds me of uh, a long time ago, I used to watch C-SPAN like a, like a nut. And uh, there was a panel and there were these, one of the people on the panel was uh, um, a, a, a an activist in Poland during the uprisings against the Soviet Union. And he talked about how, in fact, and this was a long time ago, this was before real social media happened, but it was when the internet was there. And he said, actually, you know, with blogs and everything, yes, you're able to reach more people, but there was something tangible and valuable and intimate about the way that we printed newspapers subversively underground and passed them. And each time you got that newspaper, you knew that you were a custodian of something valuable. So that, that, that speaks to that point. But let me- Well, I mean, it, 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 I really think there's strong evidence that when you give ordinary citizens more tools to communicate with among themselves, you disempower the government, especially governments that have ill will. I mean, even the transformation of the Soviet Union to a, you know, least briefly a democracy was said at the time, back 30 years ago, to be heavily influenced by the rise of the fax machine. You know, these tools, these technologies have massive historical mm. consequences and political consequences. Well, I'm going to push back to, with you, uh, push back on you on this sort of set, sense of, you know, how I actually think I'm actually I have a tendency to be negative around things like this. Uh, so, you know, I'm hoping I'm, I'm wrong here. Of course, that was the hope, the hope that this decentralized network would empower the individual and it has in many ways. But like you said, China is a good example of. Of uh, of a country that's very been very effective in clamping down, and in and in uh, controlling the internet uh, effectively. Uh, yeah, but there's also countervailing factors in China that are very positive. We could get to that. Well, we should then, because that, that's you can use that in your argument to push back on me. So uh, one is this sort of path of least resistance that I see uh, globally. The these con the, the the Western more liberal democratic countries are competing with China, uh, countries like China or like Russia. In the case of China in particular, that are very effective at corporate es corporate espionage. There is this sort of war happening on the nation state level that's driving uh, and and of course terrorism. This empowerment of the individual increasingly. I mean, you know, the the. the these same technologies can be used to help help scale terror attacks. So you have the the empowerment of, of individuals to do ill as well. Right. And you have governments that are attacking, uh, conducting cyber attacks on you know the nation state. You have all these forces that are driving governments to sort of clamp down and take liberty away from individuals. So you have that side of it. And then I think there's the other aspect, which for me, I'm not so scared of any particular leader. I am actually. But increasingly, because of the type of technology, because of the stuff we're describing, the the uh, the increasing sophistication of AI, data, the big data issue, uh -huh. the the censored universe, this sort of IoT world of sensors and data streaming, right. all that together, the surveillance a, society, yeah. surveillance society, it's in, it's it's so much more. I uh, I finished reading about like. Mm, I don't know. Six months ago, and I was and I was following Schneider. I was Schneider. Schneider's work, but I read Mark Goodman's book, Future Crimes, which I found actually re really intense because of all the the. It's just it's just full of examples. It's just lots yeah, of it's like scary. data. It is, um, but what I'm most terrified of 
is that we build this surveillance society and then we increasingly we build these increasingly sophisticated AIs and they just uh, not take over in some Orwellian, some, you know, uh, Terminator fashion, but they just simply we just simply rely on them increasingly for so much. I saw an article uh, from The Guardian like recently in less than four years, they're projecting. 6% of U.S. workforce will be gone. This is just narrow AI, you know, jobs that are like in, 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 uh, in you know, radiologists and certain lawyers and, you know, uh, drivers and stuff. But my biggest concern is that these technologies, autonomous weapons, the weapon systems they're creating now, like Boston Dynamics, those robots. I mean, this stuff is wild. Yeah, those are wild. I'm way more afraid of what we're seceding because even today, I'll take another example. The I think it's FEMA's assessments uh, or home or direct or Department of Homeland Security, if we lost power due to an EMP attack, and we had lost power for a year in the United States, you know how many people are projected to survive after that? Not many. Ten yeah. percent. And so my point is that like we already are hostage hostages to technology. We need. So I mean, I, I just that's my biggest concern. My biggest concern is that we increasingly automate. Um, well, if you really want to get really paranoid, <laughs> I do think a, an electromagnetic pulse, which is what EMP stands for, would be very devastating. I mean, to that's you can't even overstate how devastating it would be. It would erase most memories and storage, except unless they're in hardened locations. And even that many, it depends on how powerful it was. You know, all electronics would be basically fried. And that's the, think that's of, the, think of the, the world we live in now, and then imagine every digital, technological, electronic thing we currently rely on stopped working permanently, and we had to start again. That would be bad. That would be, you know, Mad Max territory. And, and honestly, uh, you can't rule that out, but to be really paranoid, it could even happen because of a solar flare. It doesn't even require an electromagnetic pulse. You know, electromagnetic radiation from the, which would be a nuclear, electromagnetic no, no, pulse would be a nuclear explosion in the upper atmosphere or low, middle atmosphere, probably. And the Russians have that capability militarily right now. They could do one. Well, they could just do that over our territory, and we could do it over their territory. And could, Both countries, the and the, too. China too, have those. Probably even Israel has that weapon, you know? I mean, it's bad. But. I don't think that's going to happen. You know, if you really start worrying about nuclear war, everything is off. Everything. So whether it's an electromagnetic pulse or a conventional nuclear weapon, which also would emit an electromagnetic pulse, by the way, just not as strong. You know, it's, it's basically game over for some significant portion of society for some significant period of time. So I'm not expecting that. Uh, and, and, and do I believe that the surveillance society is to be worried about? Absolutely. And, and I think the Internet of Things, the, you know, the you know, progress of AIs, um, the centralization of data storage in a smaller and smaller number of repositories like Amazon Web Services, these oh are God. all yeah. points of failure in modern society that are scary. I totally think they're scary. But the good thing from a civil liberties and democracy point of view is business, the rich, and the powerful all rely on those things as much as we do. And, and they can't do without them any better than we can. So, you know, they can only destroy so much before they start harming themselves. If we really had an evil, you know, 
you know, 0.0001% try to like infringe, which I really don't expect. I'm, I'm, I'm still a believer be in human nature, by the way, too. I basically think most people are fundamentally good, and I believe good outcomes are more likely than bad ones. So you have to remember that's my that's I, my bias. But I'm not sitting here counting the days to Armageddon. I'm really not. You know, well, that obviously, would be fruitless. There's, that always, would be there's always ways that things could go wrong, you know, and climate change is another one. You know, look about this 1900 square mile glacier that's about to fall off of Antarctica. What's that? Why don't you tell me so we can you can freak me out? Now. You didn't hear about that? No, That's what been happened? In the, even the New York Times had an Wait, article. When did this, this happen? I try to stay. No, it hasn't I fallen off yet. There's a crack growing at the rate of what eight football fields a day. That's cut across this giant um, ice field on this one of the frozen parts of Antarctica that's over the ocean, and it's expected to eventually break off within months or years, but certainly, you know, years, possibly even weeks. Um, and go and where? When it, well, it's already primarily underwater, so it won't displace enough water to cause dramatic uh, sea rise, but it will start floating around like an iceberg does, and there's a lot of icebergs, but it's just the idea that such a big piece of a polar ice cap is starting to yeah. break off a 1,900 square miles at once, and it's 2,000 feet thick. 175 feet or 190 feet of it are above water, and the rest of it, like 1,700 feet of it, is below water, so it's already displacing that much water. But the significance that's, that's, of I'm that. just saying climate change is real. I know. If we don't do something, we're going to be you know, in big trouble because of that. I do think we have ways of fighting back, but you know, bad things do happen. Bad things will happen. Worse things will happen. But I'm just saying we have a lot of tools to remedy the bad things. I, well, and not, and not to, and then we'll move past it. But my thing about um, nuclear, my concern with nuclear is not that um, the game theory will break down. I'm concerned that there will be a mistake. My, my biggest concern in terms of possibilities in nuclear is mistake. Oh. Based on the history of, of near, of near catastrophe. Donald Trump doesn't even know what treaties we've signed. On nuclear weapons, he's, look, I'm not, that you doesn't know, surprise me. But he, what does he's, it, you know, he's got his finger on the trigger, and I just hope that somebody's standing next to him who knows what that means. Uh, I, and, and we think probably, well, it's the biggest fear about Trump, though, the is nuclear? that he causes a war. Well, whether it's nuclear or not, is that your biggest fear? That he with accidentally him? causes a war. Yeah, absolutely. I think his his ignorance about foreign policy, his unwillingness to really be curious about the, the needs and the interests of other nations, his inability to understand the collective benefit of trade at a global level, that all of us have to rise together or we'll all drop together, that when one country tries to maximize its own benefit, it's always to everyone's disadvantage, including the country doing that at the macro level. He doesn't understand that stuff. And so I really worry that he could create war, probably with China. Um, you know, there's... I don't think it's about to happen, but I think his ignorance is much more dangerous when it comes to physical nuclear conflict, weapons. <laughs> physical conflict generally, than any other area. But do you think that his that he is genuinely a lack of, perhaps there is a lack of, of capacity, and certainly there seems to be a lack of intellectual curiosity. curiosity but do you yeah. think that that's what's driving him, or is it more just a very Freudian basic level of you know, you know? Uh, uh, insecurity, something, oh, something very. I, I, I don't know I don't what's know. driving him. I mean, I think he's a very <sighs> smart man. I think what really is sad is that he shows so little curiosity 
about ideas and especially ideas that really matter to all of our w livelihoods. You know, ideas about the interdependence of systems. That's the thing he doesn't understand and f continually airs in his actions in, in trying to behave, you know, about. He, he doesn't get that, you know, you press, a press down over here and there's a reaction over here. Uh, you know, the, the, the cause and effect of things, show, he shows no interest in that because he's so interested in short-term results, you know, which tend to seem to derive from a desire to, you know, maximize his own ego gratification. And he doesn't really care about the consequential impact of taking a short-term selfish action. And, and that's scary. Well, in the in the spirit of the show, since we're talking about this sort of, you know, I mean, I don't want to go totally down a political route. No, no, no. Here. But actually, well, look, this let's, is the world we're living in for the last let's, several. Let's weeks, stay with it know? a second, because uh, in the spirit of that, you know, Trump didn't come out of nowhere. He's a product of the society, right? So, what is it that he's reflecting that you know, brings him about? I, well, he's partly reflecting the rise of technologized empowerment. I mean, I think that it's, hmm. there's a pos part of it that's positive, you know. That, you know, we are going through a phase mm. where we're seeing the consequence of ordinary people getting a voice in societies, not only our own, where we have had a fundamental failure of education and information, where you have an ignorant society with empowered people. That is a bad combination. And, you know, so basically it's good that people are empowered. I believe in empowerment. People who you know, think the country's heading for hell in a handbasket, have the right to vote for Trump or, you know, any one of the other crazy, you know, Paul Ryan, et cetera, all these people. I don't think he's the most crazy, but certainly there's a lot of a very misguided, ignorant Republican, mostly, although not entirely, politicians who I think are voted for by people who don't really understand the consequences of the actions of, of the policies that those people are about to well, take. And, and, and so, but I think it's good that those people have the power to, to vote those people into office. And I think it's just going to be a very painful learning process for society when we start seeing the impact of that on things like let's say, for example, you know, the abandonment of a commitment to public education mm. or the, uh, the, 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 the suspension of the enforcement of environmental regulation or the, the, the suspension of efforts to combat climate change. All these things are going to have negative impacts on the people who voted for Trump. You know, if they were to eliminate Obamacare without substituting something better for it, you know, the lack of health care for people who got health care in recent years. There's so many things they could do that would be harmful. And I don't think that just reducing taxes and reducing regulations per se are going to create isn't going to create enough compensating benefit to uh, counteract the That's just disasters a, the, 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 that would come from all those kinds of changes. The conversations around taxes and regulations are binary and stupid because they are either or, and it's not like that. Some regulations need to be slashed and eliminated. Other regulations need to be changed and upgraded. Yeah, I think it's mildly There's positive no to have an attitude that we need to have less regulation, and I like that about Trump within limits. I think he's right about that. We've gotten too overregulated in many ways, I mean, but... You know, to do a wholesale slash and burn is not the answer. 
Well, like the, a, great, a great example, and we don't need to really spend time on this, but is the uh, is the 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 entire de- de- the the narrative around the banking sector and the deregulation from the late seventies under Carter all the way through to today, and then the beginning, I guess, of the re-regulation under Dodd Frank. That was, you know, that all sort of stemmed from the breakdown of Bretton Woods. You had this system that was in place that worked in a particular way. You took away this major piece, and all of a sudden you had dislocation. You had a lot of these giant shops out, these giant banks in Europe or in Asia threatening American banks. They were pushing to have deregulation, blah, blah, blah. What they should have done was they should have. They should have changed the regulation. They should have gone in and said, okay, now that we got rid of bread and woods, now that we're on a f- uh, free-floating exchange system, how do, we, how do we change and fix the regulation so that we can accommodate the structure, not go in and just basically just cut apart? In any case, that's uh, – but, you know, this, this thing that you're talking about um, – uh, uh, I'm blanking now. You were empowerment. Or? Yeah, empowerment. I'm. Well, th- well, I mean, okay. So one thing you're, you're you're touching on something with healthcare and these other things. Bottom line is this. I didn't come on here to make a political lecture. No, no, no. I, it's fine. We're I just, go- you know, I think these things do all get connected, no, and it fine. is interesting to constantly look at how Brexit and Trump and the rise of Marine Le Pen and you know things that have happened in Poland and Hungary and elsewhere, uh, Turkey are really a f- significant consequence of digital empowerment, and particularly the rise of Facebook, so, which I am very knowledgeable about. Well, I want to talk about it, too, because you know Mark very well, and you interviewed him, actually, when I was at Techonomy, and I have so many questions for the news feed and what they're doing with AI. Well, wait, wait, and go v- back to the question you VR were trying to ask me that I diverted Yes. All right. So one of the things you're sort of touching on is the fact that our global society, global political system and economy is very brittle. It's very centrally organized, and it's it's functioning at sort of max capacity. We have a financial system built on, on a pyramid of tremendous amounts of credit that requires continuous growth, which is creating the climate change we're talking about and a lot of the ecosystem uh, problems we have and the consumerism that's gotten out of hand, a lot of the things that we don't like, we're trapped in this paradigm of growth um, that, and, and a lot of that growth is bad. It's like, we, it's, like we're, it's like we need our cancer to survive. So we have this, this, this very, very rigid system um, and the, the solution, you touched on it before, which is this decentralized peer-to-peer sort of society that we're seeing like like me, like for example, what what I'm able to do today in my life, I don't know how you and we. I would love to get into this too, like just sort of how you started the economy and how you run it now. Um, but you started at a different time. But right now, I'm basically a company, literally of one. But I have had many people work for me at various points when I'm doing theater, all the actors, all the production folks, uh, with this show, sound engineers sound, uh, uh, you know, art producers, whatever, all these different people are coming. I, I have an office at WeWork. Like everything is- So do we. We just moved to WeWork. Did you? I just did we, that too, we, like we a few years ago. Which WeWork are you in? Uh, Soho South. Yeah, we're on 43rd and 8th. It's very cool. Is uh, it? But I, can I go back to the growth thing? <laughs> I got to go visit you, I don't know David. where you're going with your question, but you know, you threw a lot of economic arguments in there and- I did them to obfuscate. That's data ob- obfuscation. Well, this question of growth, <laughs> I'm not an econo- economics expert- I don't even really feel like I understand how Wall Street works. But I think growth is a very complicated question. And even consumerism, which we were discussing before the show as a fundamental negative, is a complicated question. I don't think growth is bad. I think we don't know how to measure growth. I think we think that Some growth, types of growth and this is, is where blockchain point. becomes relevant in Bitcoin. You know, 
new ways of assigning value to things, which is what blockchain and Bitcoin will ultimately enable, will potentially allow us to have healthier growth. Because one of the problems with growth today is it's all measured in terms of a very clumsy measure of GDP, 100%. which is totally a, a false measure that does not factor in many of the truly determinative ways that our lives are changing. 100%. You know, Eric Brynjolfsson at MIT, who's a very good friend of Techonomies, has done a lot of work on this. I've had other economists. You know, we're getting enormous amount of what are called free goods out of our smartphones that aren't showing up in the economic statistics. I mean, when you download an app for free on your iPhone or your Android device and you use it and you get pleasure or, you know, diversion out of it, that doesn't go into the GDP measure at all because there's no dollar changing hands. And yet, would we argue that it doesn't create benefit in our lives? So the growth we need is growth in human capacity, growth in even something even more elusive, happiness, you know, empathy, all the things that really matter in human life. And we just don't know how to measure those things. Instead, we're measuring this That's really dumb, stupid, half-baked thing called dollar-based GDP, dollar GDP and we're saying, oh, we push that too hard. And we do. And that sort of leads us to this consumer society. You could even argue we're producing the wrong shit. Can I say that? Uh, yeah. Okay. You can curse uh, as much as you want, actually. Uh, but you, you know, can certainly say that we're producing the wrong shit because we are. I mean, we probably need to produce more emotionally relevant products well, That goes and back to what we were talking about. And less, consumer, you know, hard goods that are evanescent and have a very short-term impact on economic behavior, but really the, the long-term economics of human behavior and human happiness are gonna build the more people's lives really become better. And people's lives are not made better by a larger car or you know a different colored shirt or whatever. I love shirts and I love cars like anybody else, but my life is ultimately made better by much more intangible things that we don't measure very well. Like this conversation, right? This is oh, making our life better, right? <laughs> Just all right. Uh, we're going so many places, and I wanna. I, there's. I wanna go to all That's these places. I told you, you we had more than enough time. Baby. I told you, you man. Where it's gonna go. I, I told you. Um, all right. Well, let, all right. There's so many things, but before I do want to get to Facebook because you said Facebook, and I want to get to AR, VR. I want to get to the news feed. You're talking about data. I want to talk about that too. This jobs 2.0 thing. All right, so data. You said data. That's a big problem. We have a society, Sports Center. I mean, Sports Center runs on data. Everything and everything that they produce is all about what can we quantify. And that is a fundamental problem. That in order for something to be within the sort of bucket list of, of solutions, it has to be uh, quantifiable. And so we economics is the queen and king of that they they love to have these numbers that prove their point which could be pure crap i mean look at finance look at the varma the value well, I, I at risk disagree. models i love measuring things i love data yeah, i think but, i think to think that data per se is somehow negative to me is absolutely wrong but hold on let me make, let me make my point let me make my point my point is this like bringing it back to finance the way that 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 uh, financial firms measure and have measured risk has been catastrophic gross domestic gross domestic product we measure growth based on these these transactions in the economy we measure it in that sense and we don't distinguish between good growth and bad growth which is why you can have something like an economy like china funding massive amounts of projects like creating ghost towns and whatever else and their growth keeps rising every year and everyone's like oh the economy is growing and then in a year 
year or two, you have a meltdown. Everyone's like, where did all the where did all the wealth go? And it's like the wealth didn't go anywhere. It just was fictitious. It was on a balance sheet. I'm just basically saying, yes, data is fantastic, absolutely. But we have a love affair with this sort of. Uh, this post enlightenment society where we've taken we've we've created we've created gods out of we've I, I, it, yeah but we're just measuring the wrong stuff well, i would go all, back to yeah. the same point and this is even when you talk about china you know i i this is to go back to your point about china being a authoritarian you know a surveillance state kind of thing which i would agree to some significant degree it is but it also happens curiously and not in not coincidentally to be the country of all countries pretty much on the planet, or certainly of all large countries, that the only one that is led by a government that truly understands technology. So even at the same time they are using technology for what some might call repressive means, they are also using technology much more intelligently for genuine societal growth and genuine societal fulfillment. And, you know, they understand how to knit things together to make the economy work better. Okay, and many of much of it is on conventional, you know, GDP type, you know, consumption-based terms. I wouldn't say they've gone beyond that yet, but they are doing a huge service to their people by bringing them out of poverty. And you can never disregard that when you talk about China, despite what they do to repress freedom of speech, which is a genuine negative and, and, and a source of great fear for those of us who are so honored and, and fortunate to have this incredible freedom we have here. But, but you know, in China, they've put a much higher priority on reducing what was 30 or 40 years ago the world's largest source place of poverty they they've taken half a billion people out of well, poverty let's say something about that though you're and i don't you're so they've so extended their lives the, they've fed them better they've you know it's so important to make that those those points and i don't and i'm not taking anything from that i actually want to use that to make my larger point which is i see and this is the same thing in markets which i have seen and I, and it alarms me we are building a society we're scaling a society so that we're uh, we're trying we're, we're creating underlying instability increasing amounts of underlying instability larger tail risks when we were talking about nukes before it's not that I'm worried that we're going to have a nuclear war it's that there I'm are so I think we could easily have Well I'm just saying there are I'm so I'm not expecting it though there are so many unlikely events that that uh, that to ask is any one unlikely event likely well okay no but then to ask is an unlikely event an indiscriminate unlikely event unlikely likely less likely it's much more likely than any one single of one of those events and i just feel that and that's what i saw in 2008 which is you you when you when you uh, create a lot of when you decrease transparency like we had in financial markets that's just one great example there are many things that can happen uh, that go under your radar and then it just shows up as a catastrophic event um, but but you know china and, and again, you're, you're correct. They've done a great service in terms of modernizing their economy. And it's, you know, they're, that they were very much playing the cards they were dealt. And they were playing an emergent, emerging market, uh, small countries. They were basically playing small ball for a big, they were, they're a big man. They're the biggest freaking country and economy on the planet. Not the biggest economy, but they're getting there. And they were playing like, uh, like a Hong Kong. They were playing like a small market country, exporting their way out. And that has created a lot of dislocations globally. Um, but, you know, to, to sort of follow through on that, the 
because I wanted to cover this thing you were saying before about healthcare, which is that I have a lot of issues in general with how all sorts of things are done uh, in in the economy. But I recognize something fundamental, which is that there is sort of how I would like things to be and what the reality is. And the reality is that when you have stuff like these projections from Pew Research of 6% of the U.S. workforce uh, losing their jobs in the next four to five years due to automation and that increasing. We have to do a radical rethink about the value proposition of the human being in society because right now, I mean, we're still functioning off the same value proposition model of, of people having to sort of fend for themselves in this sort of natural capitalist society. I don't want to go to the other extreme of socialism where you have this redistributive model and you have just, you know, you're, you're getting, I don't like the idea of a universal wage. Uh, I want to get there effectively, but uh, not through like having to have it redistributed. Do you ever think about that? Like, what is a sort of better way to get somewhere so that people actually feel invested and they have freedom in the economy, but they can't obviously continue to, it can't continue to operate the way it is now in this future automated world? Well, like I said before, I'm not an economist, but I do happen to cover technology. Yeah, you're smarter happen, than economists. I happen to know the leaders of the tech industry who are the ultimate culprits in income inequality, uh, and I know how they think to some substantial degree, and there's no question that the concentration of wealth that capitalism in the United States and elsewhere has enabled has, you know, exacerbated a wide range of social problems, and, and we need some form of redistributive approach. I, I totally believe we need some form of redistributive approach, um, which I would not call socialism. I do think we need universal health care in the United States. It's, a, it's an egregious crime that we are the only country of any sky, size in the world that doesn't offer it. There's no reason we couldn't do it except for the entrenched interests of the companies that benefit from our current dysfunctional, inefficient health care system. And I'm very passionate about that. But... Um, Beyond that, you know, it's interesting. It's great when people like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Mark Gates and Mark Zuckerberg say they're going to give their money away voluntarily. But then, you know, you see Stephen Schwartzman sitting next to Donald Trump at the Economic Advisory Council, you know, who made $700 million last year in salary or whatever the hell he made at his stupid, <laughs> selfish company, you know. Those people have to be taxed more, uh, one way or another. I don't think we should move away from capitalism. Well, they're paying less taxes. Okay, than call me a Democrat. You know, you know. I think the rich people should pay more tax. Well, hold on. Is it the rich people, or are you just basically saying let's 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 first of all not let's not have it so that Donald Trump is paying zero taxes and you and I are paying whatever? Like it oh, shouldn't. You know, like Warren they, Buffett you himself have a, said, you shouldn't it's have a, regressive it's a tax. crime that he pays a lower tax rate than his assistant does. You know. Uh, Again, we're out of the realm happy, of my he was, competence. He was happy making all that money. I'm not going to become a, a, a prognosticator on tax policy, but I will say um, it's wrong that we live in a society where there is such massive, obvious deprivation. And living in New York City, it's in your face every day. You know, mentally what, what, ill what, people how? stumbling down the street on my block every day. And that's gotten worse. Babbling, you know. 
living outside in the 20 degree weather with not enough clothes. We see this every single day in New York. That is a crime, a scandal. It should be completely unacceptable. And the fact that we allow it to happen shows how fundamentally inhumane we are as a society, including me. I, I probably tolerate it too much myself. You know, what I feel as so many do, powerless, but it's wrong. I mean, but you're getting to the to the central problem there, which is that there's only so much you can do. You cannot start bringing. Well, you can have a government that's more effective and has better. Right, policies. but I'm just saying that like it's not. I, I do I do understand and, and I, I sympathize and, and with what you're 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 expressing that feeling of feeling powerless and feeling guilty. Uh, but there's it's just one of those things where it's it's really like you said, and I agree with you. People are fundamentally good. What what we were what we're willing and what we want versus what we have. There's a huge spread there, and that really comes down to game theory. That comes down to cooperation. Who can you trust? Like, who do I give sort of authority to for for whatever? Uh, you were talking about um, these. Sm you do know a lot of smart people. I want to talk to you. I know a lot of rich people. You know a lot of rich people. And smart I'm not people. rich, but I know a lot of rich people. <laughs> uh, you know a lot of rich people. You know a lot of smart people. You interviewed so you. Many of them got rich because they're smart. Not all of them, but many of them did. Yeah. Well, not yeah, exactly. Depends who, but like certainly Mark's a smart guy. Certainly uh, Bill Gates is a smart guy. Um, but you talked about Mark. You had Mark on at Techonomy. Uh, well, more more importantly, I wrote a book about. You wrote a book about. I wrote the, the only effect. historical book about Facebook that anybody's ever written called the Facebook the effect. The Facebook effect. And it you know it's close to a biography of Zuckerberg up to the point that came out in 2010. So yeah, I, I know a lot about him. All right, you know plenty about him, and uh, you actually you, you had the head. You're so. Smart. I mean, I've interviewed him more than any other journalist. I can tell you that for sure. All right, David, you're you're really. By the way, I gotta say this to our audience. I mean, I, you know, with this show that I'm launching now, what I, one of the things I want to do is I want to do little small panels and plenaries at sort of places like WeWork and other places here in New York with some of our guests. And uh, man, I am so impressed by what you've done with the economy and your sense of uh, newsmaking. I mean, you had Mark. Right after the elections, and you knew what to ask, and of course, it made all this. I mean, I was literally at a news event two days ago, on uh, the on the news feed and on fake news, and they were quoting that same story, that same you know interview. Fake that news Mark, comment he made. The yeah. fake news. I yeah. want to talk about this because when I when you were interviewing Mark, one of the things that struck me, separate from the news feed, was I didn't feel I, I don't remember what it was. I think it was when you asked him like. Maybe it was something specific you were asking, but then also it was more generally the way he talked about, like, when you were asking him about the new stuff, he just seemed, he seemed generally not evasive so much as just not particularly piqued by the subject. Whereas when you asked him about Jarvis, his AI, or when you asked him about the, uh, the stuff he's doing in Africa about creating um, uh, Wi-Fi or whatever it is for people, he's, he lit up. Like, it's like, you know, I think uh, I, I've I've and I wonder, I, yeah, and I wonder to what extent a lot of these brilliant people who are working on these incredibly important life-altering sort of societal-altering technologies are have a, a different mindset than most of us, and I wonder to what extent that's guiding a lot of their decisions. I, I be be more specific. Different in what way? Well, they're kind of spectrumish. I mean, they they have this sort of like they have a less like I was sitting at a table. Like uh, he, oh, okay. uh, well, I don't mean it in a. No, I don't. I don't know. Uh, well, I'll I, say. I'll say what I mean. Like I was sitting at a at a table at uh, the dinner that night uh, with a uh, and a data. Uh, she's like an, a linguist, linguist at Facebook, data anthropologist, something. And we were speaking, and 
I asked her questions about like you know certain things about uh, drawing insights from the data, and what I found was that. She just generally didn't seem interested in, in these sort of, you know, more philosophical questions. They were much more interested in the sort of behavioral, behavioral sort of stuff, like how do we get people to engage more, and that's sort of just it. Um, I don't mean it in a pejorative. I mean it literally as we, you know, th these guys are brilliant at what they do for a reason. They have a very particular mind. Like when you speak to some of these people, they're they're just like machines. You know, they just have a very Focus. computational mind. Yeah, I still don't get your point about his engagement. I mean. Are you saying he didn't seem to care as much about the yeah. issues of regulatory, uh, yeah. ethical, um, socio-cultural impact kind of thing? Yeah, it felt that way. And it, like I said, it didn't feel that way I because... I didn't feel that. I mean, hmm. I think he's very interested. Uh, I don't think he's terribly concerned. Uh, but I think he, he, you know, he's extremely interested you know, I think he's very excited about some of these other projects, like, as you mentioned, AI as a transformative tool in, in Facebook and in our lives, uh, the political and economic consequences of bringing Internet access to the several billion people that still don't have it, which is kind of amazing if you think about it. Yeah. You know, in today's world, there's still several... I mean, it's more than kind of amazing. It's shockingly amazing that... There's still several billion people who don't have any access to the Internet. Say that again to yourself a few times and then think of how many times today you have relied on the Internet for 500 different things and imagine that there's still almost half the planet doesn't have access to that. Is that scandalous or what? Do you think and I have to say... Zuckerberg agrees that it's scandalous, and he's working very hard to remedy it. No, I, look, the, uh, he, he clearly does, and you could tell that he's passionate about it because he was very clear about that. You could tell how passionate he was about it. Um, speaking about that, do you think that uh, Africa might be uh, an amazing sort of uh, place to be in X number of years now because for because of exactly like the way they oh, adopted yeah. you want to buy low and sell high, buy in Africa now. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Africa is the place in the world where growth, you know, however do you want to define it, is going to have the most transformative impact in coming decades because they have been so left out up to now. And, it's, you know, people look for opportunity. There's massive There's opportunity no in entry. Africa. Because, look, like you have human companies. capital of the same type as everywhere else that's basically been discriminated against for all kinds of reasons, by colonialism, by racism, by geography, etc. And that is ending slowly but surely. So those economies are going to go soaring, and a lot of people are investing. China is investing big time in Africa. They just built this they railroad between Africa, between uh, 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 Ethiopia and uh, uh, what country was it? Djibouti? What country is that in? It, there is Djibouti. I don't know if they It's did. not Djibouti. It's not Somalia, it's the other country next to it. But anyway. If you, I mean, uh, uh, Eritrea? No, it's not Eritrea. They hate Eritrea or anything. <laughs> but anyway, um, I don't remember. But they just built, the Chinese just built a new railway that's the first transnational new railway in, in that part of Africa in many, 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 many years. And it's Chinese project. Look, there's no doubt. I mean, I'm not, I, you know, I'm, I'm, it's impressive. I just uh, I did get that sense though, and I and it was something that I it wasn't the first time. I mean, it was the first time I'd heard Mark speak about the issue. But I've heard. I mean, I, I've I've seen. You know, there's a, there is a uh, 
the, we're all people are different. People come in different shapes and sizes, and people have different priorities innately. And I just uh, my biggest concern is that the people that are engineering the future uh, may be sufficiently disconnected from the sort of day to day or just just perspectives of other people. I think they may be overly disconnected. I think I'll tell you what I think about that. I but think not that Silicon Valley obviously. as a geography is too isolated. That there is a group think that does prevail in Silicon Valley, the physical space from San Jose to San Francisco, that causes people to think differently about the world that they are creating that is not sufficiently integrated with the things that the rest of the world generally cares about, whether it's ethical values, whether it's, you know, economic equality issues. I think there is a lot of political awareness in that region. You can't, of course, ever speak universally about any geography, but I think there's something about the idea of being in Silicon Valley that's becoming a negative. And that's why I think it's very healthy that we have so much more technology here in New York, places like London, Paris, um, smaller Barcelona, York, you know, I mean, all, every city across the country of the United States has entrepreneurial activity that's really Estonia. increasingly, you know, Miami, you know, Knoxville, you name it, there's a lot of startups. Um, but so I think there is a problem that Silicon Valley is a little insular. That's what I'm agreeing with you about. And how how determinative and problematic that is is very hard to really assess. But um, they need to get out more. That's bottom line. It and uh, and and they need to stop talking to each other so much. They need to have more people of more diverse types in their companies. It's all a bunch of white boys with a few Indians and Chinese people. And, you know, they're all men, almost entirely. And they all think the same way. Many of them went to the same schools. And, you know, that is a negative. When I used to, It limits the scope of their thinking and their ideas. I used to uh, work in the video game industry. And I had, the last time I was at the GDC in 2007, the Game Developers Conference in 2007, you want to talk about that is that that is a super nerdy boy kind of, you know, like all guys. Like there were like two chicks there. There was this one I remember and she was like a, a professional gamer and everyone was chasing after her. Um, all right. So well, women play games, too, and they're figuring that out. <laughs> they um, play games. You're right. They play games, absolutely. Um, I mean digital games. I mean, they'll pay money for software-based games. And, you know, those guys not can't always build the right ones. That's also true. Yeah, well, the women are, aren't women bigger consumers of mobile? Yes. Yes. Um, mobile gaming. What's, okay. Recreational talk, mobile talk, gaming talk is, is a bigger, more female thing than a male thing, I believe. Talk, all right, let's keep, let's stay on Facebook since, because this is, I've got you here. I've got you captive. And I'm gonna milk this out of you. Tell me what we're. What is the future of Facebook? What can we expect? Where is Facebook going? What are they doing with AI? What can they do with AI? Because obviously their biggest competitor is Google in terms of the data they have and the infrastructure they have. What are they doing with VR? And uh, and then let's. T I want to talk about VR more generally and sort of where you see that going. Hey, why do you just ask one question? Um, <laughs> Throw well, them all out. There. Um, the future of Facebook is that it continues to dominate communications globally, um, that it will probably continue to grow both in revenue and profit for the foreseeable future, 
that its opportunity is primarily to extend further into the parts of the world that uh, are just coming online now, and that's the way it sees itself. That its big business opportunity is to increase the advertising rates in less developed economies, where you know typically um, the you know in the in North America, Facebook's uh, annual revenue per user is, I believe, twenty dollars. In uh, Asia, the less developed parts of the world, it's more like two dollars. And so that's a big differential that the, as they close, and it closed by making it higher in the $2 part, uh, they can grow their revenues and their profits. And those people want to live like us, so therefore, over time, you know, consumerism, which you disparage, will lead to the need for more advertising and revenue for Facebook. So Facebook's business has a good long-term prospect, a prognosis. Well, let's be Me clear, the, the, business, the business being advertising, the business being getting people... Facebook is an advertising... Right business yeah uh, as a business but uh, facebook has other revenue but that's primarily what but it would is you say revenue. can i just say advertising is the current thing but really what they're really good at ultimately and this is really the, the sort of the base of it they're really good at at uh at, targeting yeah but increasingly getting people segmented people segmentation even of one to do to move and to take actions that they want them to take i don't know that makes them sound manipulative but no it's something I mean, look they was that study that I, I came out to some they degree were... they can be seen as manipulative but that's not the primary way i think of them the primary thing that they're trying to do is create engagement um and you could say that the way they engage people is by you know sort of pandering to them and that could be considered manipulative, but that's but not the just primary Facebook. way. I it's, think but it's not just Facebook. I mean, this Facebook is the, whole, is the best. This is the news. But this is the news industry. If it's a problem, industry. it's a more of a problem for Facebook for anybody else because Facebook has more data, more people, more exact ability to target than anybody, bar none, by far. But you're far. getting that. You're getting. And that's but what makes them such a promising and transformative and scary company. But you're getting at the the problem of the fake news issue, right? Which is. That's it's, just that's just one of many. Issues. But right, but it's so what I'm saying is not just Facebook. It's that in this world, what ma it's this momentum driven and also uh, behave. It's like I think of like Skinner and behavioralism, right? It's like or behaviorism. It's it's this thing where, where where the scientists are getting better and better. They don't care what's they don't. It's black box. They don't care what's happening inside your head anymore. Like that's not what's most important psychologically. What matters most is how do we get you to behave the way we want? It's not. It's not. I mean, well, here's another way to think of it. Facebook has more data about human behavior than any company has ever had, and that and they run is studies a on very that, big deal. And it's a big deal that could be used for good or for ill, depending on what they decide to do. And I'm generally a believer that they have good motives and morals and values. So. Overall, at the moment, it doesn't worry me too much. Although, as you'll recall, if you look at my interview with Zuckerberg at Techonomy, I was pressing him on some of that and what the governance is of that and what, what would happen if he disappeared or was hit by a bus and all that. These are real questions because his values currently completely control that company. And that's a little bit of a fragile, you know, risky Trump. scenario if you have that powerful of a system. Um, but the fact that they have all that data about human behavior is where you get to the AI, right? Because if AI exactly. is the future of computing, the future of interfaces, the future of society in some ways, then the winners in the AI battle are going to be the people that have the most data. Because AI is 
good only to the degree that it has good data, and it gets better with more data. And so that's why you know the companies that are going to have the fastest progress in AI are going to be Google, Facebook, Facebook, and Amazon, because they have the most data. Uh, probably others won't be able to compete. IBM thinks they can compete by getting data from disparate sources. Maybe they can. They certainly have good software. But the data is really a fundamental competitive advantage. And so even if Facebook had worse AI software, they can accomplish more with AI because they can feed it with more information mm -hmm. that is more definitive. And, and therefore, you know, because AI is just software like any other software, right? But, it, you know, it learns, and it learns from the quantity of data that goes into it. Facebook continually produces more and more data about people and human behavior. That is a gold mine that nobody else has. All right, I want to stay with this. I mean, that's the primary point I'd make about Facebook. You know, they are that's that's the thing they almost stumbled into, but it is a spectacular well, that's the future, competitive advantage yeah. for them. Well, that's the future. I mean, that's the future. I'm not picking on Facebook. So we're staying with that whole thing there, Facebook, Google, Amazon, and AI. Uh, what... How how interested are you in AI? I'm interested in it. I'm not a programmer, but well, I, think, yeah. I think AI, you know, is one of the central technologies of our present time that we have to all spend a lot of time seeking to understand. It's a very muddy topic. It's very hard to define what's AI and what's just software. I mean, AI typically is meant to refer to things that systems that learn, right? And you know that that learn without human intervention. In other words, talking they about kind general of, AI, or we're talking about general now, right? Not AI that gets better with time because it can sort of process information and improve the quality of its decision making, as opposed to just an algorithm that's good until it's reprogrammed by a person and then it gets better. That's the difference. Right. In other words, AI is that that really matters to me and that I think matters to society, and that will have the most impact is AI that effectively programs itself right. to improve. And that is an increasingly large portion of the societal software that we're surrounded by, and it's generally a good thing. Uh, and, you know, it, it it's still controlled by humans under most circumstances, and I'm not one of those people that thinks it's about to go off on its own and start, you know, in a hell. You don't believe the singularity is 2050 or 2045, like Kurzweil. I don't. I don't know about the singularity. I don't. I don't really think about it. I think it's too far to worry about. Well, you had Ray on. You had Ray, and he was talking. I mean, a lot well, of, a lot of yeah, we have Ray without having to agree with him. <laughs> uh, we've had Ray Kurzweil twice at Techonomy, um, but I don't worry about the singularity and. I don't worry about HAL type, you know, computers taking over, you know, from us and removing our hands from the tiller and beginning to steer without us, period. In general, I don't worry about that right now. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but I do think that systems that learn are going to benefit us tremendously in things like self-driving cars, uh, civic technology, which you mentioned before, as we manage our cities for more efficiency, um, you know, auto translation tools that'll get better and better so we can, you know, all speak, you know, Esperanto. Um, those things are big deals. But what about, so the, there, I, I do agree that the, 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 um, the immediate sort of prop, the security the is another area. Absolutely. The immediate, uh, and identity verification and biometrics, those, that area is, is amazing. Um, but, uh, I agree that, 
the challenge of narrow AI, you know, these autonomous driving, I mean, the, the autonomous driving vehicles, of course, are a classic example of both the uh, job uh, destructive sort of uh, situation. We're, we're going to destroy, in my opinion, my opinion, we, the, the concept of creative destruction is great. I'm all on board with it. Problem is, in order for it to be effective, it needs to happen over a broad time frame. We are now, as you, under, as you know, living in a world of exponential rates of change. We are going to destroy faster than we can create. So I think that the challenge of narrow AI is that it's going to it's going to disrupt the economy um, faster than it can sort of create new opportunities for people. Um, and that all sounds good. I'm not sure I buy it. Okay, interesting. Why? Well, for one thing, we've been moving in this direction for a long time. In the United States, more than any other country in many ways, our unemployment is at the lowest rate it's been in many, many decades. Um, there is no evidence so far of macro job destruction because of technology that I'm aware of in the sense of, yes, of course, a lot of jobs have gone away, but a lot of other jobs have arisen. And I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know. I hear differing points of view on this every day. Mm. There definitely is a contrarian point of view that new forms of work will emerge that will suck up the human capacity. The big problem that everyone agrees on goes back to this education point, that we aren't preparing our society and our people for the world they are going into, that we're not spending enough time or money or focusing properly on the kinds of educational systems that will prepare people for a more automated society. And ironically, it's increasingly the view, even of those that are most immersed in the computer science, that what we need to teach people is the liberal arts so that they can think for themselves in order to compete with the machines. Because basically, if you think about it, the reason the machines could displace jobs is because people aren't smart enough. People haven't been taught to think clearly enough to be to live with uncertainty, to assess risk, to 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 understand fuzzy things, you know, which is what liberal arts is all about, you know, reading a novel or or looking at paintings or you know, thinking about poetry or understanding the subtleties and the uncertainties of history, these are things that teach your brain to be fluid and flexible and plastic that, that in a way that computers are much further away from being able to do. If all you can do is like turn a widget on an assembly line, yeah, a computer's gonna replace you really fast. And those people are going to lose their jobs, and many of them already have. Certainly, we've had huge job substitution with automation in manufacturing. Do I think that's bad? No. On balance, I think those jobs were dehumanizing, and people shouldn't have to do them. But if we're not taking those people and teaching them to do something that has higher value, uh, then we're really screwing ourselves as a society, and that is sexually what we're doing now. But it's not a pure function of the technology per se that it's destroying jobs, and that's the thing we have to think about. It's that we're allowing it to destroy jobs because we are not investing in our human capital. Okay. Those are, those Do I have an opinion on that? Your your opinion is great, and it's uh, I um. I told you I was going to start shouting into. I love it. I love it. Watch the levels. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, uh, so I, okay, you you make very valid points. Um, I want to I want to stay with that. Tell me what your so what does David Kirkpatrick see, um, when he's looking and thinking about how he's going to fill Techonomy NYC or Techonomy twenty seventeen, and he's thinking about educational technologies. He's thinking about the need to to revamp public education what is he looking at 
and what does he most find most promising and most effective? What for? What for our programs? For, what we want to no, put in front of our audiences? No, 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 no. When you're thinking, solving what problems? No, no, no. Let me let me be more clear. I'm saying when you're doing your job, as in you're looking for. Okay, so you're sitting around anyway, and you're having these thoughts like anybody else, and you're because you're 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 a deep guy. You think oh, about yeah, this yeah, stuff. Yeah, you're no. I mean, no. You go. <laughs> you are. You are. We've talked plenty. Um, I know that about you. So you're sitting around. You're saying, you know, these, you know, these things are what's important. Like when you think about how to program your conference, and you're saying, you know, let's say I want you want to, you want to deal with the subject of education. You want to deal with this need for public education. So you're looking around. You're saying, you know, who's doing what? What I'm basically asking is, what does David Kirkpatrick think could be a, a viable solution for this problem of deteriorating public education? This need for a common core. This need for liberal arts education. This need for sort of a common uh, f- framework for us to understand history and sort of to relate to each other. What's happening? What's what are the and solutions? How can what 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 I, I don't know. I mean, I don't have the button I know how to push to, to solve social society's problems. Um, I do see a tremendous amount of innovation in education, uh, in education technology, in um, assessment, in curriculum development, in new ways of organizing the classroom, in new types of school structures um, that if we were to invest in them would bear fruit at a macro scale, I think. Um, you know, and I actually think there's a lot of interest in that. Um, I, I do think, you know, to, to have, uh, uh, it's hard for me not to think about the fact that we've just installed a secretary of education whose only interest seems to be taking money away from government and giving it to people to just pay for whatever they want and taking away the collective efficiencies of a centralized educational system on the presumption that we simply can't do it well enough, so let's just let the market decide or let the states decide or let the community decide or let the family decide. I don't think it's true that we can't come up with some collective methods that are very effective. But you haven't heard of anything that's particularly... Oh, I've heard of there's a lot of things. I'm not an educational expert per right. se. But we've run across all kinds of examples of, of intelligent, software-driven educational methodologies. Um, you know, you just have to, like, Google the word technology, so education software, and you could be wallowing in good ideas for, you know, the next month. There's so many good stuff, good things happening. I think we, I mean, we agree, we agree, we agree on this, on the, on the notion It's not that my job to have all the list of the software <laughs> tools at my fingertips on education right now. Okay. So look, I mean, I, 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 I agree with everything you're saying about the need for this, particularly your point about liberal arts. Um, I mean, we need a collective mindset shift. I mean, for one thing that I don't agree with is all this talk about STEM, 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 STEM. We need more STEM, STEM, Science, STEM, 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 STEM. technology, education, and, and or math. Yeah. math. I mean, we do need that, but it's not to the exclusion of the other stuff. And a lot of schools say, oh, yeah, let's just hire more math teachers and hire, fire the art teachers. That will basically yeah, lead to a disaster. You know, one of the problems, another thing, a lot of people think, oh, we need to have more programming. We need to teach more children to code. Okay, yes, we do. We do need that. But if you just teach them to code and you don't teach them to think, 
that kind of coding is going to be automated and those jobs are going to go away. Mm -hmm. Just knowing how, you know, it's probably a good exercise for your mind, just like learning algebra is a good exercise for your mind to learn how to code. And I don't happen to know how to code. But I do know that people who know how to code and really see where things are going think that coding at the low level becomes just like factory work used to be, dehumanizing, you know, and, and not high pay. So it's not the answer to like teach everybody to be a shitty programmer. The answer is to teach people to think. Are we living in a simulation? Oh, I don't care. I don't <laughs> care. If, it, if it's true, it doesn't make any difference What do you think me. about that argument? First of all, your brain is a simulation. Did you, would I you, think it's would a very funny that? thing to ask about, you know, and- The way I asked it also was very good. It just it, came to my mind it, when you were talking for some reason. It's but, very funny. Uh, and <laughs> the, the, so for our audience to know, that's uh, I sort of, I mean, there are many obviously people that have talked about that. I think- the article that sort of uh, circulated recently was a 2003 article by Nick Bostrom. Ask Nick Bostrom, by the way, you've read Superintelligence, I imagine, since you're talking about all this stuff. But uh, Nick Bostrom wrote this article about, are we living in a simulation? Uh, it's sort of the idea that, you know, are we in the matrix, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, f forget that a second. Would you say that everything you're experiencing right now is a simulation of your brain? Would I say that? Yes, would you? No, I wouldn't say that. You wouldn't say that. I mean, so, what do you mean? I think, in other words, is the macro world, is my brain a sort of micro version of the macro world? or what? So what I mean, I do is, believe that, you know, the universe is contained within a grain of sand and that kind of thing. But, you know. Uh, <laughs> What's that? How does that work? No, I mean, you know, the, you know, the fractal patterns are <laughs> right, found, right. you know, at the most microscopic and the most macro levels sure. of society. There's a lot of... Of, of, of harmony in the universe. I see that. I believe in that. I'm not an expert in that, but I understand the argument. Um, you know, the Tao of physics and all that stuff. What, what I'm, what I'm, so, okay, okay, this is what I'm getting at. So, Don't get right. me into too much philosophy, Ariel. It's gonna, you'll, you'll be disappointed. Okay, well, all right, I'll get my point. This was what I was saying, so I don't want to, uh, I'm sure I'm not going to be disappointed. You haven't disappointed, you, you, this is, there's no disappointment here. All right, but 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 what I'm basically saying is, uh, you, you know, like Max Tegmart, whatever his last name is, the guy's singularity, he has that book, like The Mathematical Universe, um, this notion that, like, at its core, the universe is informational. The Everything that I'm experiencing with my eyes, everything I'm seeing, all these things that, are percep percep that I'm perceiving as solid are, in fact, not. That's just a perception. They're an almost entirely empty. Uh, the, the light that's bouncing off these objects, I'm interpreting it and experiencing this particular form of reality. I was, you know, so whether or not this is a computer generated simulation or what other, I mean, all, all the stuff that's happening in physics and quantum theory and uh, brain science around perception, reality, I think all that stuff is fascinating. And and the reason I brought it up, I think at the end of the day was because we were still talking about Facebook and, I'm, and I am curious what you think they are and what the, doing and what the future is of VR oh, and yeah. how you see that's all going. Oh, you really came back around to something. Oh, practical. listen, I'm okay, not just good. going off on tangents. You needed to do that. Uh, <laughs> I don't think VR is as important as AR, augmented reality, in any near term. Um, I think that VR will be a very exciting way to kind of experience uh, remote or otherwise unexperienceable uh, feelings and visual ex experiences. Um, I'm more interested in the short term in what comes after the smartphone because I think the smartphone is a fundamentally inadequate, outdated, clumsy, breakable, battery-impaired, 
distraction. Hmm. I don't like the smartphone, even though I love my iPhone. So I think those two things in, in, are kind of contradictory, but those are both statements that I would make. You know, I, I prefer to use the best one that's out there, but I still don't like that it causes me to have a hunchback and bump into people or crash my car. Or, you know, we need better interfaces that are more intuitive, that are more effectively mental, you know, and we need displays that are more intuitive and essentially universal and permanent. So how like do we project? Well, I'd say projecting imagery on your retina would be kind of like the dream scenario. Yeah, that stuff freaks me out. And uh, ultimately, um, probably input would be mind reading, you know. But in the interim, we'd go to voice, <laughs> right? That's big. Um, voice is big. You know, voice is very connected to Huge. AI, very connected to AR and VR. And I think that AR as the output and voice as the input is the short-term answer to where we're yes. going with the next phase of computing. And um, I would like to get there sooner rather than later. I think the whole idea of apps is really disappointing, outdated, uh, inefficient. Uh, it's actually uh, a clumsy way for companies to enhance their control over our minds, really, because we have to go into their app and be in it. It's data know, well, capture, too. I mean, them. ultimately, we should have something much more like the original Internet, where everything is built to the same standards and doesn't require you to, like be in a private universe, right? Which is what apps are, essentially. They're private commercial universes. Uh, so, but meanwhile, I still use my phone. I love Google Maps. You know, I love Spotify. I love Uber and, and Lyft and all that stuff. I use that shit. But, uh, but you know, AI, I mean, VR. Um, and AR. It, it's, and... VR really, neither VR or AR are good enough now to really have any significant impact. Mm. Uh, I mean, look at the story of Magic they Leap. They say AR and, and, I mean, they say the next, the, there's rumors that the next iPhone might be a transparent piece of glass with AR functionality and enhanced voice. I, that sounds like a stretch. That would be great. I would like that. That would be a real step forward. That's the kind of thing Apple should do that I frankly don't expect. You think their innovation, innovative capacity has declined significantly? Well, that's proven. I mean, basically, they're making all their money on a 10-year-old's idea, right. you know? So, look, I don't, I would love it if a clear piece of glass with AR functionality was possible uh, in the near term. And that would be much better than a lot of other things that I can imagine. So, um, yeah, let's hope that Apple's good enough to make that happen. All right. I'm, I'm going to release you from your captivity uh, in a few minutes because I think you've, you've, you've given us plenty. And I don't want to exhaust your... Uh, well, when you have this long of an interview, unfortunately, <laughs> it's possible to range widely. All right. Well, we did. So I'm going to ask you one thing, and then and then before you go, I want you to tell us about uh, what you can tell us about Techonomy NYC and the health tell, stuff. I can tell you a lot about that. All right. I do want to hear about that because that's here in New York, and I'm going to be there, and I want to know, I want to know about that. Uh, I want to know what your thoughts are on this whole sort of, since you and I, our, our, our relationship goes all the way back to the art of dying and the conference on death and dying. What do you think about what's going on? Because there's some, you know, there's some real serious talk in in the Silicon Valley groupthink community around immortality. Um, whether it is this notion that we can take these non-defined, uh, as of yet, 
uh, or ever possible, definable notion of consciousness, digitize it, put it on a server somewhere, or this idea that we can just, you know, which is more plausible, eventually get to a point of continuously upgrading our bodies and maintaining it so we don't die. Uh, what What is your sort of sense of this whole thing? Like this whole... Well, First of all, I don't think it's possible to download your brain into a digital device <laughs> because I don't think your brain can be separated from your senses. And uh, I don't know how, unless you have hands and eyes and temperature capabilities and skin, I think the way our brain works is connected to all of those things, in my opinion. So I don't, I don't buy this downloading your brain bullshit. <laughs> but I do think we have proven capacity to very rapidly improve our replaceability of our body parts mm. and increase our longevity dramatically, and we're clearly doing that already. I mean, my wife and I still have three parents alive at 90, 92, and 94, and that's increasingly wow. common. And my mother just died at 89 a year ago. So look, uh, people are living longer, and it's going to continue to happen at a very steady rate. And given the current state of what we know. Uh, and I'm happy for that. I want to live as long as possible. Do I aspire to immortality? Probably not, because if I really thought I was immortal, I don't yeah. think that the moment would be very important. You're not taking think, 500 supplements a day and... and uh, I think that living, you know, <laughs> this, unfor you know uh, unfortunately or fortunately, I think understanding that you're mortal may be key hmm. to appreciating the present. Yeah. Uh, and I think if we really believed ourselves to be immortal, we would take the present for granted too much, and it probably would make us more inhumane and a lot of other terrible things. So I think we probably need parameters, uh, but we're moving clearly, very relentlessly, steadily, technologically in the direction of higher capacity for longevity, and that's a good thing. I mean, I'd like to see it last a lot longer. I'd much sure. rather go to 200 than 100. Um, I'm not sure I can imagine what I'd be like at 160, and I'm not sure I'd like it from where I sit right now. Uh, but uh, look, uh, we're already a lot, I'm 64, and I'm a hell of a lot different than people that were 64 when I was 15, a lot different. Um, and uh, Well, for our audience, there's no, you're a tall, thin, fit guy. Well, thank you. You, <laughs> you are. Do you, what do you do for that? I don't think way? of myself as old. You work I mean, out regularly? No, not really, actually. No, really? I live in New York City. I walk a lot. Walk, I have seen I you walk. Pretty, I, I see you walking around places. I eat healthily. You know, I, I don't know. I get a lot of sleep. Do you? That's uh, good. Have you always been able to get sleep? You I'm never had sleep sleeper. problems? I got sleep problems, David. I'm a very good sleeper. There's a lot of good doctors for that. You should definitely. I'm actually, that's, I've actually made an appointment. Sleep, sleep, sleep medicine is a very sophisticated area, actually. Um, <laughs> so... Immortality interests me as an aspiration, but I don't. I hope we never get there. That's what I'm okay, saying. Okay, so now, all right, let's get now to the the to your conferences here in New York, and then the one in 2017 in uh, at Half Moon Bay, which is yeah. the same kind of one that I had been to. What's going on with these conferences, and uh, like, what what are you most interested in? Like, uh, you know, tell me, because like you said, it's a two day conference. One is is uh, Techonomy uh, NYC. Yeah, if I could get my computer, I could be yeah, more sure. authoritative on this. If you give me my bag, which is under those coats. Uh, well, let me just first talk about what they are. Techonomy uh, 2017, which is our main conference in November. Right. Each year, thing, you that's do it thing each year. This will be the eighth time we've done that. Uh, and uh, Techonomy 2018, 2017 is going to be an incredible you know, two-day affair. That's where we had Zuckerberg last year. Um, and, well, you know, what we do with Techonomy generally 
is we have the most wide-ranging conversation we can think of about how technology is transforming society. Right. That is our aspiration. That is what we, what we seek to do. Um, and I think we're pretty good at it. Uh, so, oh, good, there it is. Uh, so, meanwhile, in May, on May 16th and 17th, we're having two days here in New York, the first time we've ever had a conference of this scale anywhere other than New York, and anywhere other than California or Arizona, which is where we've had our main event for the last uh, seven years. Uh, and we're going to have one full day on health, technology and health, and then a full day on techonomy, big picture stuff. Um, and we've already got people like Ariana Huffington and Beth Comstock of General Electric Electric. and um, Esther Dyson, um, a lot of great medical people for the healthcare thing and people from all sorts of nonprofit, for-profit, technology, non-technology, pharmaceutical, uh, big company, small company, um, academic, uh, scientific, you know, we try to have the most multidisciplinary conversation we can about whatever we tackle. Okay, that's something that makes us somewhat unusual. Also, the crowds, I, I'm going to say, because I've been to your conferences. So another thing that's really, really, really awesome about your, your conferences is that people are not just smart in their domain. There's an interdisciplinary curiosity among the people that go to your conferences. So you'll get into conversations with people that are interested in all sorts of things, yeah. which is really cool. Well, that's what we hope for. And so, anyway, May 16th, which is a Tuesday, will be a full day on Techonomy Health, which will be, you know, all the ways that digital technology and the internet and technology broadly is changing healthcare, how genomics is intersecting with digital health, how, how uh, you know, what's happening with the American healthcare system and technology, and what does the replacement or substitution of Obamacare imply for healthcare innovation, Um what are the innovations in the insurance system? How could the U.S. become a more healthy society? Those are the big questions, and how mm. can technology get us there? Um, and that's actually interesting to almost everybody because we all intersect with the healthcare system, and there's a lot of really interesting things happening in healthcare that are kind of uh, representative or symbolic of things happening in other industries. So we don't think that's just for doctors or health policy people. It's for anybody, but. It's really an interesting discussion. The second day, tech, uh, May 17th, which is a Wednesday, uh, will be a very wide-ranging conversation where the kinds of things we've been talking about here will be all fair game. You know, every single thing we've discussed would potentially be fair game. You only have a limited amount of time, so right. you only get into a certain amount of things. We're talking about, like, I'm just looking at a list I have uh, on my computer of things we're working on. Data ownership as a civic or civil right. Um, you know, blockchain's impact on business. Uh, the future of civil society in a digital age. Um, what did we learn from Theranos from about entrepreneurship and and uh, and the that's future the health, of that's startups? The, company uh, that... the one that's sort of crashing and burning after <laughs> getting a valuation of what stupid twenty billion or some idiotic thing. Um, what's the continuing discussion on on uh, the power of these giant internet companies? What they're going to mean for all of us, both business people and citizens. Uh, both positive and negative, how innovation is shifting for companies and how the management of companies has to change as innovation becomes a higher priority, how the pace of change will cha- will be adapted to by companies across a range of industries. Um, you know, a lot of it has, that we talk about has to do with innovation, how to think about innovation. And we believe that's like the single biggest challenge facing all organizations, business and otherwise. How do you innovate faster? So that kind of topic will come up 
in various ways. And blockchain dovetails with that because a lot of people think it's a tool for innovation. Um, you know, I, I, you know we'll, we'll talk about government. You know, but at that point, there's going to be all kinds of Trump stuff that we'll have to be tackling. Um, media is going to be a big part of it. I mean, we'll talk especially here in New York about the industries town. that really matter here, how technology is transforming media, finance, uh, publishing, uh, uh Increasingly, the entrepreneurial sector of New York City, what's happening there with the new Cornell Technion, uh, Tech NYC, which is a new organization to promote tech in New York. Uh, we'll have representatives of those on our program. Um, you know, like we have, we have a guy who runs a company that's already building systems to regulate and monitor drones. You know, just to name something out of Which left field. Which is a field. huge problem that you know, people aren't aware of. The all kind, you regulatory know, issues around airspace. And yeah, managing the airspace issues that drones uh, bring to the fore. We have a company that's already pioneering that area very successfully. Um, we have a lot of people who have uh, very innovative healthcare entrepreneurial projects, uh, some of them quite far along, some of them less far along. We'll work with big companies, um, big executives from companies like Johnson & Johnson, GE, Accenture, Ford, IBM, uh, Philips. Uh, these are all companies that will be represented on the program. So it's a, it's a really amazing synthesis of big company thinking, entrepreneurial thinking, government thinking, scientific and technological thinking about where society's moving both as it relates to healthcare on the first day and as it relates to all fields of business and society on the second day. So we, we, we like being very ambitious. How do, how do people sign up for it? Uh, if you go to techonomy.com and click on the events tab, then you can get uh, information and register right there for both Techonomy Health or Techonomy NYC. You can register for both days together at a discount, or you can register for each day separately. Is there any early fee that people can still grab? Yeah, there's an dis early discount there's if you discount. come in there now. Yeah, it's for just another few weeks. But you got to get in there now. Yeah. And what, where are you guys doing it? What hotel? Or it's going to be at, at, on 46th Street and 6th Avenue at a dedicated right event space. It's sort of like a we right work for News. events. <laughs> it's a beautiful new space, which I don't want to name yet because we're okay. still signing the contract today, in fact. But um, a great, great, beautiful space. Our events are known for their super high production values. Yeah, and the first time, this is going to be the first time we've done an event outside of our annual event that's really going to have the production values of the type that we believe in. And that's partly because we found a spectacular venue here in New York to make it really easy to have this kind of high-quality conversation with all the AV excellence that you need and the food and everything at the highest possible level of quality and comfort and convenience. I will I will tell our audience I've I, I've noticed that about your events there and it's everyone knows it they're extremely highly produced they're beautiful they're gorgeous you guys are, take care of, of every single that. detail it's it's actually that's it's, why it's, they're not free yeah. no they're definitely not free but they're totally worth it if you I, I'll tell so I you know this is my this is my honest to God endorsement of you and your 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 conference as I, as I told listeners I've been to many conferences in my life. This is yours is really the best. Techonomy, and just in case you're missing the name. Techonomy. The Techonomy Conference is the one he's saying is the best. Techonomy is going to be it, Techonomy in New York on May 16th and 17th and Techonomy uh, 2017 in Half Moon Bay, California on Which November is amazing 5th through 7th. And comes with fire pits. Fire pits. Uh, David, thank you so much. I really appreciate Thanks you Dimitri. coming on. That's yeah, a fun really, thing to go really on for so expansively. I <laughs> enjoyed you. it a lot. Thank you so much. 
And that was my conversation with David Kirkpatrick. I want to thank David for being on the program. Today's episode was produced by myself and edited by Connor Lynch. Sound engineering was Tilianos Nicolaou. For more episodes, you can check out our website at hiddenforcespod.com. Join the conversation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at hiddenforcespod. Or send me an email at dk at hiddenforcespod.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.